0: Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress manicure and press-on falsies. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.
1: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tobin.
2: And I'm Robert Diamond.
1: And this is TalkArt.
2: Welcome to TalkArt.
1: How are you, Rob?
2: Today, Russell, I am feeling like an alligator. And to be accurate, I'm actually feeling curious about what it would be like to be an alligator. Because I'm just obsessed. And it's a theme that I've seen Over the years, since discovering today's guests' work. Yes, um, recurring, a recurring theme. It's a recurring theme, a kind of Uh open mouthed alligators and teeth. Yes. And it got me thinking about the lives of alligators and, like, how we as humans often are really scared of them. And then maybe that's totally unjustified because they're just living their lives trying to do their thing. And, like, you know, what do alligators do in their time off? Like, you know, if they're not well, they eat, They hunting. eat humans. No, but they, they don't. Eat humans. That's a lie, <laughs> Honestly, I've done loads of research into this, and actually very few humans get eaten by alligators. It's actually, like, often prey that's smaller than... Than um, humans, it's really fascinating. But I got thinking, like, what does an alligator do in their time off, and like, how do they relax? Like, are they like, do they have a kind of interior world? Like, it really got me thinking. And this is just one of many things that um, the work of today's guest (laughs) has got me thinking about. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, I've also been thinking about like, uh, you know, transitional spaces and kind of like ladders and the way that art can help you go from one place to another. Um, in quite a kind of profound way and how it can actually really improve your kind of experience of the world. So our guest today works across performance and film and sculpture and installation and um, also painting and it has become really well known over the past kind of i'd say five six years i was first familiar with the work thanks to overdune and kite in los angeles i saw a show there and then saw an amazing solo booth i think with tanya layton maybe at freeze new york and ever since have been sort of following their work and I'm just obsessed and I'm really excited. I was texting you before this, like, I'm so excited about tonight's episode, <laughs> partly because I've never met today's guest and I've never even heard them speak. So I'm really excited. So we would like to welcome to
3: Talk Art
2: Math, Math. Bass.
3: Bass. Hi, Math. Wow, hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I love that introduction. I can <laughs> tell you, I know that alligators eat very, they eat infrequently. Ah, so I, what,
1: any what humans or anything,
3: anything. So they eat, and that's it for weeks. Love that. They slowly digest their food. So really, I think in their downtime, they're kind of just chilling. Yeah.
1: Wow. And the same with crocodiles; they're part of the same sort of pattern mm-hmm. of eating. Yeah. So and uh, we're talking about that. You know a lot about them then, because they are. I know a, a central I know, motif.
3: Yeah, I know some about like the actual creature that the animal alligator I know that out of all of the amphibians they're the only amphibians that actually care for their young so they'll after their eggs hatch they'll watch over their young they'll uh, hold their young in their mouths they use their mouths almost as like a protective cage and their babies hang out with them for a while until they're big enough to run off Mm. and get eaten by you know birds Mostly.
1: Wow, and what came first then for you—the the alligator as a motif or the the interest in alligators?
3: The alligator as a motif came first, and right. it it happened really spontaneously. I was just in my studio and i was I was drawing, um, and this is like I don't know, maybe eight years ago. I had started to draw a series of discrete symbols, which you know, in turn grew into a larger vocabulary. One of the first images was an alligator. Um, it wasn't the form that is more, is po- is popular today with my work, but it was an earlier version of it.
2: Mm. And also your your most recent show, which I think is just up now, is it at, at Veal Meta, Meta Projects Meta in, Gallery. In, yeah. in Los Angeles, um, that show also has other kind of natural, like, animals, like snakes. And I saw an amazing image of, like, a snake uh, wrapped around eggs. And this kind of, like, you know, th- there seems to be an element of kind of, like, natural history or something as a th- as a sort of running theme throughout. throughout. Or,
1: or archaeology. There's yes, always bones yes. appear.
3: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. This is true. Um, the snake, I think, the snake started to pop up in the last seven months and I mean as a symbol or as an animal when you think about a snake as like such a transformational being yes I think you know there um I think that was the genesis of the snake but I did I was doing an image search I was initially I was initially searching for images of dragons I just wanted to see what kinds of images of dragons existed and then I came upon an image of a snake coiled around its eggs and there was something about the warmth of the image or the warmth of that, you know, that maternal embrace and protective holding that I found to be really moving. Um, And also just like creatures that are so, so entirely alien from us.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, so this latest show that Rob was talking about, this is a transition for you in the fact that you've discovered oil paint. But let's go back to the original, what we were talking about this kind of vocabulary, this language you've built of symbols, which feels like it's, I think at one point you've called it Kvar after Adobe. It feels like for the emoji generation. (laughs) These kind of, these (laughs) these symbols appear in your uh, work since 2012 when you developed an ongoing. Uh, series called News which is spelt with a Z on the end instead of an S and through them is how I discovered your work uh mainly at the MoMA PS1 show which was in 2015 oh yeah and you create these they're unprimed canvas and you create these um simplified formal um solid colors but they're hard-edged geometric shapes but they're also this this vocabulary you're saying you've you've um kind of amassed over the years, but they're they're loaded. These symbols seem to be loaded in something and they all formally are created on these canvases. Let's talk about these because this is an ongoing series for you and something that you're constantly exploring.
3: Yeah, and I think what has kept me really interested in this vocabulary and in the use and repetition of a fairly, you know, pared down um, set of symbols has been almost like an investigation into like a tonal tonal language, almost like in the sense of like musical notation that we have this composition Mm -hmm. where it's like, you can say like, stop, or you can say like, stop. You know, there's so many different tonal varieties and relationships that I'm finding um, emerge between these images, which are like, some of them are directly referencing things that already exist and others are kind of dealing with the, of interplay between the body and architecture between what is familiar and what is more obtuse or more abstract and i think um kind of interested in that that space in between in between the what's known and what's unknown the abstract and the familiar and kind of thinking about there's something i think i find about the language to be very familiar for people that allows them to enter it. But then once you're standing inside of it, you're like, wait, I don't actually, what is this language? And I don't know what this is exactly. But I think I invite for um, an openness of the experience.
1: Yeah, you, you like people to decipher the language and you like people to get lost in that. I always feel like these symbols uh, that more and more appear. Every year it feels like there's a new addition to the vocabulary. And for me, I always feel like, well, I've always wanted to ask you, are they are these symbols autobiographical and, and the recurring mm-hmm. motif of them? Is each symbol loaded? Because I always feel like there's some tension between the symbols and the way that you position them together. But it feels like each symbol is kind of a moment in your life, potentially. Is that is that a right way to decipher that?
3: They enter at different moments in my life, but they're not uh, in and of themselves describing the moment. But the, there's always an interesting sort of like when I look over the last eight years when different symbols have emerged and I can identify these yeah can you say any
1: stories behind like because the the, like say the say the the bone appears or the cigarette and the matches it always makes me think of Greece the musical whenever (laughs) I I feel that that, because I feel like it's a very kind of macho in some ways quite um you know smoking cigarettes and it's a bit naughty and a bit and it feels like it's of a time as well, like the sixties. Mm. There feel it feels mm. that vibe in your kind of practice.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean I do love just like this the ephemerality of the cigarette. I love the way like I don't smoke anymore. I used to smoke and it's one of those things that eventually I just had to stop doing. Like I couldn't just keep smoking into my forties and fifties. So I yeah. But I loved just like the framing of the moment or the way that the cigarette really like gave you this pause and like just expanded and like kind of the like alchemy of like burning and inhaling and exhaling and feeling the breath in that way and like the weight of, of something kind of like turning from material into the immaterial. Um, and I think when I actually started painting the cigarettes, I literally had stopped smoking.
1: So you were sort of wanting a cigarette, (laughs) so instead of wanting a cigarette, you painted
2: one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I've always been really interested in your practice about how you're able to sort of create sculptures and environments that you can walk through so for example if mm-hmm. you think about your your MoMA PS1 installation for example mm. um you know you, you had like the ladder like leaning against the wall and then you, you had like floor sculptures and then you even like opened up uh, a wall in between two different spaces and 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 then when, when you look at them in relation to the other works you make such as your films or or your even your performances or the paintings that russell's been describing like there's such an interesting connection between all of them and it's almost like sometimes the objects that are leaning on the walls have just jumped off a painting or vice versa and that even like your early film i think maybe from like 2011 or 2013 something like that where you have the um i think you're actually inside like almost like tents you know, like mm-hmm. uh, uh, those shapes of those tents, almost like circus tents or something. They, they could also, again, be like uh, objects in the paintings. So it's this very cohesive universe mm-hmm. that you've created. How easy is that for you as an artist to do? Is it like a real difficult thing to pull off? Cause it seems really complex.
3: Um, I try not to do anything that's too difficult. No, I'm just kidding. Oh,
0: really?
3: um, it's, it's not it's, it's, no, it's it's something that kind of just got, it comes natural. I mean, okay, so when I started working with those tented forms, I was on Los Feliz Boulevard, which is like a prominent boulevard in Los Angeles, that it's like, you know, there's a span of mansions, like literally on a thoroughfare. And I'm like, why would you ever want to your mansion to be on a thoroughfare? Like, isn't the point that your mansion <laughs> somewhat insulated but there's you know a series of huge estates on like basically what is kind of like a highway and one day i was walking down the street and there was a mansion that was tented for termite so when the termite tent goes up it's literally like this spectacle spectacle of condemnation it's like striped broad stripes orange and yellow and these colors, and it's literally i was like wow that what a spectacle And also how this like mansion has suddenly become a break in the landscape, a hole in those like kind of repetitive shades of beige and gray and pale pink and white. And I was really struck by it. And I was like, what would, what would happen? Like if I tented a body, what would happen? How would the body turn into a location? So in a way it's like a lot of my work really comes from my encounters with the everyday, Mm -hmm. And then in how I take those, really suit kind of regular encounters but then i synthesize them or organize them into my mind in in a new form yeah so a lot of it just has to do with like i don't know like you know sometimes i'm just like really vibing with like the rhythm of everything and i'm like the car intersects the tree while the jogger runs by and it hits the beat of my song that i'm listening to and i'm like you know so oftentimes i'm really like generating a lot of ideas From sort of just being being in the world. From existing, yeah. So
1: these these houses that that isn't a thing that we're used to here. So that's like chemical bombing, is it inside to get? It's chemical
3: bombing, yeah. And in Los Angeles, it's like a it's a common thing. It's like usually before someone sells a house, they tent it for termites, and you see the tent go up, and it's only up for like three days. And why is it? Why like, do
1: they choose these incredibly vibrant? I
3: wonder. Places? I wonder if it's because it's so toxic that they're just kind of like, "Do not go near this or house." Do not like enter. A wa- or like maybe, a wasp, like or, a bee. or maybe it could have even been like an advertisement by one company back in the day. Like, wow, wouldn't it be funny if instead of just putting a gray tarp over this house, we made a tent and like, a tur- like a circus yeah. tent? I think it's yeah. just something that caught trend, but it it is spectacular, and when it does happen here, I get very excited. I
1: just yeah, find it yeah. I think it's incredible because you've taken, as Rob was saying, these tarps and then they've been laid over um, kind of structures. And mm-hmm. in your work, the body is present or it is absent. It's, it's but it always feels like the body is an element, whether it be your body or one's body to project in. But these these forms kind of create like I always feel like they're either like a den you go and play in as a kid. Or it's mm-hmm. like there's a human figure underneath that's been shrouded and they're doing something. They're either in like quite a sexual position, some of them potentially, or just being present. Like they're, but they're being hidden. They're, it's being revealed. Where are you, by the way? Are you in the middle of, like, in the middle You're on of the like a raid?
3: You're on the mansion. It's so loud. Yeah. I know. A bit I of mean, a termite like bombing. Like yeah. Ambulances and cop cars. And I'm on Los Feliz Boulevard. Love it. Oh, I'm busy, busy Los Los morning so there. So I'm in a, I'm in a high rise on Los Feliz Boulevard. Right, the high a Los Angeles high rise. Wow, wow, wow! Genius. Well, we can hear it. Yeah, I, know. I, move, I so moved, I the- moved into this like funky mid-century high rise. It's kind of borders on being in a retirement home, and I love it. I love That's it. That's <laughs>
1: That's great, so the, so anyway, so these structures then that we were talking about, so they they for you, simulate um a body being present or absent,
3: yeah, I think it's kind of like that non the non duality of having both at once is what I'm really interested in, um and those those uh tarps were initially. Basically, there were performance costumes for a two-channel video that I made when I was doing my thesis at UCLA, and then they moved on to have lives as sculptural form. So it is a lot oftentimes about kind of like how something can go from being a costume, a prop, to being a form, to then being like refed back into potentially like a two-dimensional frame, being spit back out into a three-dimensional form, and kind of trying to find almost like this line between like an inherent flatness that becomes voluminous and I always find that to be like really compelling it's like there was a series of metal forms that were almost like a flattened and then like reconstituted silhouette of of some of the vocabulary and those were positioned in space at Overden and Co in a sense it was like a viewer kind of couldn't look at any painting without looking through a sculpture. And depending on where you were standing in the room, the sculptures either became like razor thin or became incredibly full. I'm interested in like, kind of like the invitation, like the way that uh, someone who's viewing the work can move through the space and move through the sculpture in a way I'm hoping kind of, Facilitate this like bodily relationship between form and then two-dimensional image.
1: So you, it's almost performative as well in some ways. Then you're embracing that side of uh, an audience.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's like the for, the sculptures can be performed by and then also informed by the movement of the viewer. Right, right, right,
2: right. right, 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 and,
1: right. and what you're saying about recurring, like bringing. Um, that in from an earlier work, it feels like you bring these works in from all through your career and through your practice. And yet there doesn't seem to be any hierarchy for moments in it. You bring them all into the present day. A lot of these works are from like there was concrete sculptures at a moment yeah. PS one that were from 2012. And then there was works 2015. And as you go forwards again, you borrow from the new series, which is ongoing. So it always feels like there's a constant thread with you where you're, you're still, you haven't, um, a, a, a decided on what is finite in uh, a body of work
3: Mm -hmm. I think that there's always sort of this circularity to it in a way where I can return back to something that you know that I found or like came upon like seven years ago and to kind of bring that into the present moment to bring that freshness to it to me like it's not about like okay well I did that it's done goodbye I'm never going to make a cast of denim shorts again because I think when i look at the entire body of work i think it is this ongoing cast of character and that that you know there's a lot of space for those characters to kind of step forward emerge recede come back again you know take their leave so in a way there's like i think of it as like this theater of images yeah i
2: think i've always i've always imagined that you some, some somehow there's like a a dictionary or like some kind of like like T- tome or something that has this kind of civilization, like a record of a civilization that's somehow being revealed slowly through your work. It's like a really strange subconscious mm-hmm. thing that I pick up, but I've never really had to understand it fully because I trust in just how I'm feeling when I look at the work. You know what I mean? Like it's, and I quite like that yeah. kind of openness. It doesn't feel strict or
3: anything. It's like... It's not, and there's not any way that... It's not that there's a certain... I'm not aiming towards having people, like I'm not trying to control one's experience of view Mm. or one's experience of relating with the work. And there is an intended openness. And that comes from a general, my experience of openness, just like in the way that I move through the world and approach relationships and engage with images and artifact. and I mean, I was watching this incredible, really great, I think it was even like a, a documentary about the 18th Dynasty in Egypt, and kind of like about the scribers and how if you wanted to like basically enunciate an idea, it was like the symbol was just repeated, like mm. so there'd be like ten images of Osiris's profile repeated just to like like stretch it out. And I, it was just I was vibing. So it now, last
1: now one. we would use an exclamation mark over and over again. That would be the emoji generation way of doing it. That's how we'd process that information now. But then, wow. kind of wow. makes me think so of um,
2: Nancy Spiro as well, weirdly. Like, you know, when Ooh. Nancy Spiro used to, like, repeat, like, objects within, within the wall, uh, murals or paintings or what have you. I love Nancy's work, God.
3: So, and I yeah. mean, I think there is, like, that repetition and that what we find through, like, slow change through repetition, abrupt shifts, seeing something kind of repeat and fragment, repeat in full form... And then also the way that repetition can give birth to entirely new symbols or like to recombine one image with one symbol with another and then we find like an entirely new, like a lot of the vocabulary grew and was generated by sometimes even just pulling out a fragment of one symbol. It's like, where did the bee come from? Well, it was the top of something else. Like, And then where did the flower come from? Well, it was like multiplying what was sort of like this ball socket image. Into parts, like it was just so. A lot of it is like kind of like how do you take like four words and create an entire novel out of them or something? Yeah. Or how do you kind of yeah. work with these limitations to, yeah?
1: You know. I feel like there's um because we was talking about grease and the smoking and everything, the way that I kind of projects onto it, but there is a there is a gender kind of uh, vibe that goes through all the symbols you've chosen as well. So, like, you just mentioned the flower, which would, you know, stereotypically gendered be for the female, you know. And kind and it's kind ma- of
3: a mask flower. Yeah.
1: I yes. it's kind of- <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I it's mean, a very mask it's flower. It's not a binary flower. That flower is, no. you know, for but everyone. But we do but- have the
3: hard static flower and we have the more liquidy fluid flower. You know, yes. there's, like, these different... But there was something okay, so in this documentary last night, something that really struck me was speaking about all of the images that were depicting the afterlife were completely frozen. You never see a depiction of movement because once you start to move, the image becomes finite. But when it's presented as frozen, the stasis kind of is, an, is a, kind of an indicator of the infinite, or the infinite potential. Mm. And I thought that was so interesting. I mean, even just in thinking about my own kind of examinations yeah. into these like fro- frozen yet animated. Yeah.
1: But would you animate them now? Having that conversation now, See, like in
3: an actual film. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's like so if they funny because spinning, I, moving.
3: I have friends who are who are animators who are like, "Give me your vocabulary. I want to make. <laughs> I want oh, a- please." And I'm like, I mean, I haven't done it yet, you know. I've thought about it, of course, but at the moment, I think there's something that already is, at, like, that the tension between stasis and movement is so built into them that, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: You know, I could see a Super Mario just going up and down, you know, all the, all the jaws of the crocodile delegates. <laughs> that's our,
3: yeah, our, that's our, our, our four-bit generation, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I actually
2: find those flower works really arresting. like, looking at an image of a flower is something so expected that you think you know what your relationship is to it you think you know you understand it even because you see flowers in the real world but your flowers are actually quite strange like they're they're mm. quite compelling and and like you're talking about having different variations of the same flower in a way that some of them maybe are almost melting or you know morphing or they're very other to me those flowers and it I, I think the first time I saw them, I was like, Math's doing flowers? Like, like, in the work? Like, what is this? But then the more I looked at them, I was like, these are totally compelling. Like, they really, really are strong. Mm. Was, it, was it quite a surprise to you when you started to, you know, make these images of flowers?
3: I think uh, one of the last flower paintings that really surprised me was um, in the last solo show that I did with Tanya, Leighton, and Berlin. Mm-hmm. And it was basically like to me very much these flowers were bodies in a way. Like I felt like they were very bodily. And then there was a small silhouette of a stealth bomber that was kind of just tucked into the composition. Wow. And it it was clearly like, oh, these two things kind of don't – they don't exactly go together, but then there was this way that uh, I don't know. I was interested in the way that they just kind of like kind of slipped slipped in there.
1: Well, I mean, that to me makes me feel of like Vietnam War or make make peace, not war, and, and Yoko and John and the flower and that you know the you know that kind of a very Americana '60s feel that I yeah, feel at work has yeah. the kind of nostalgia to it. Yeah, that it really excites me. But the, as you're saying, it has this ambiguity as well for an audience to decipher. But there's like mm-hmm. you have these speech bubbles that feature a lot. Sometimes the bone can look like a speech bubble, or sometimes there is a speech bubble. Mm-hmm. But they, they, they're, yeah. they're sometimes, most of the time, they're empty. And I think someone's describing as hovering between the speech bubble and unspeakable. And yeah. it's like it's like the, there's something that you're wanting to say, but you don't have the words for it. So these symbols take that place.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I've always found, I haven't always had the the most easy relationship with just speaking. I I admire and I'm in awe of people who can just orate freely. And for me, it's just, it's never been, it's never been so easy. Um, But I I, I remember that quote, I think Connie Butler said that, and I thought it was like a really beautiful way of talking about that kind of utterance, or that like Mm. between, yeah the speakable and the, and the unspeakable. And, um, and I mean, I think, you know, I like the way that those speech bubbles sort of, I kind of like hover on whether like something is being spoken or something is being ingested. Um, the bone, the speech bubble originally was a fragment from a bone and that's where it was pulled from.
1: Yes. Ah, oh, right. Right, the end, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: So I wasn't yeah. seeking well, out, like, hmm, I want to make a speech bubble, but it was something that I found in a fragment in, in another work, in a composition.
1: Yeah. Well, it feels like you're painting sound, and, and that sort of, uh, kind of, solid like... Harnessing sound, but if as a performance artist, that's where you mm. started. And I saw a performance uh, of yours called Brutal Set where you're singing and it starts off very harmonious, then it's incredibly discordant and hard to listen mm-hmm. to. And it ends mm-hmm. with you smashing a plant pot on the floor after yep. climbing, yeah, to like ladder. stop, and then it comes in with <laughs> stop. a like, you're torturing. In with beautiful song, beautiful yeah. song it comes
3: in with the gorgeous pop song, you know, yes,
1: yeah. One is yeah. the uh, loneliest number, and it, yeah. it's it's really powerful but your voice is incredible stunning and but it feels like that that even though I don't know if you're still performing like that anymore which I can't find anything recently Mm -hmm. but it it feels like that is being pushed into the flatness of the Mm -hmm. paintings you're kind of Mm -hmm. harnessing sound Mm
3: -hmm. I do I I love I love working with sound I love sound as material even just combining sound and editing sound right and even working with video, like, for me, there isn't, like, a separation between those two things. Like, if I'm, you know, editing video or and, and working with sound, there's always just, like, finding those rhythms and repetitions. And when it comes to, like, singing, for me, like, that's my most comfortable way of, like, speech, in a way. Or, like, working with um, kind of, like, I'll, I'll get these hits of sentences like i'll be like you know driving and suddenly it's like an entire sentence pops into my head i'm like i don't i don't know where this came from but i'll write it down and then i'll later just sort of draw it out or find the tone or find a way of kind of like bellowing it and in a sense it's like you take this language and you bring it into song and it's like you're physicalizing all of this feeling and to do that with a group of people for me is just like, I don't know, it's just really powerful. Um, when was
1: the last time you did that? Was It, was it wasn't it? was then, was it in 2012?
3: I've done smaller performances, like the closing of shows, but I haven't done a... That was the last... Oh, no, you know what? I did a performance at the Whitney about three years ago, and there, there was a lot of singing in that performance.
1: And did you sing in that? Um,
3: I sang in that with a few others. And
1: have you recorded your voice?
3: Only, like, you know, on my computer, on my phone. I had, I had, in the show that I did with Mary Boone, I had a series of recordings that I made with my a couple of my friends. So there were these tall, ply columns with black holes, in the, and the sound was coming out of those holes. So there were four of them, and the sound was kind of broken apart so that you could sort of stand in between these columns, the sound sculptures and you could sort of hear someone with a soprano and my bass voice across the room. So you're kind of getting hit by these five vib- vibrational frequencies.
1: Wow. So you're a sound artist. Yeah.
3: I really love sound. I mean, I, I find that there, you know, there's something that I can achieve. There's something not achieve, but there's, something that I can do with sound that I can't do with painting per se. And there's something I can do with painting that I can't do with sound. And I kind of just dip back into that continually. But I, I am, I think I have, I've never played an instrument. Like when I was growing up, you had to take one instrument from like say fourth grade through sixth and, and then you could stop. So I was literally screeching at the violin and like pretending to play it. Like I was like, I don't, and then I didn't have to do it ever again and i wish in a way that i had been able to continue to develop that relationship because i think i have a musical mind i have a rhythmic way of writing i have a rhythmic way of producing images so i think whatever it, that whatever might like feed into like one's ability to play an instrument it's kind of just gotten like rerouted
0: for me Mm.
2: You know, earlier on, we were talking about that film you made, uh, *Past the Line*, with the um, mm-hmm. with the kind of tent shapes. I heard that that um, the the kind of thing that sparked off that film was actually linked to your anxiety to do with your performances. I read this really interesting interview with Mia Locks, the curator, and you from a while back, I think, and you were talking about this anxiety, and I read it and it resonated so strongly with me because it brought back all the memories from being on stage myself when you know you're kind of. Being given a, the privilege of actually, you know, being able to perform and and do these things in the world, and then suddenly the anxiety kicks in, and you know, I heard Sia the other day talking on a podcast, uh, the singer-songwriter, and she was saying that when she worked with Christina Aguilera, for example, Christina was like, "I live for performance, you know, and every day I wake up and I want to perform, and the only time I'm happy is when I'm on stage." And I and Sia was like, "For her, it was like the polar opposite, and for me, it's yeah. the polar opposite, like getting on stage." Polar I, opposite. Yeah, and it's the same for you. <laughs>
3: I mean, even for right now, I'm experiencing a great deal of anxiety because I get, I get so anxious. I don't know how people do it. Like, so when I was in my early twenties, I think I was such an exhibitionist. I was like in the, you know, underground art scene in, in Chicago and we were all just like out there performing, doing like wild stuff. And it was like, but then as I got older, it got harder and harder to the point where I was like, okay, I can maybe do this once a year. To like okay, maybe I can't do this at all. Like I don't even know. It's just, it is incredibly vulnerable. And and um, yes. And I, I I do I do know that when I move past that extreme, I mean it's the kind of anxiety where like I watched this YSL documentary and I was like, oh poor baby, I I can see how anxious he is. Yeah. Just having to like go and like stand in front of his collection. He's just like collapsing with anxiety. And I, I know what that feels like, but I also know what happens when you actually get on and it switches. And then Mm. somehow that tension transitions into just this utmost present feeling where Mm. whatever that presence is like creates an entire, like kind of opening around you. And I think that that is the, generous offering of for me of performance is opening up that space and inviting the people who are in the room as participants because we're all participating and kind of resurrecting this super present event
1: it's kind of a privilege isn't it it feels like a privilege for everyone suddenly
3: i think there's something spiritual about it i think there's something that cannot possibly be recorded so like I found when I look at the actual documentation of every single performance, I'm like, I can't even because I know what was happening IRL and it just doesn't translate. Right. I think, I'm not saying it's an impossible thing, but for me, it it hasn't.
2: I think it's the fragility, you know. There's something so fragile about a live performance, you know, that at any moment something could even go wrong. Like maybe Mm -hmm. your voice when you start singing doesn't work anymore. That used to be my fear. Or, you know, and I remember losing my voice off stage and then going on stage and being able to sing. It was like the weirdest thing. Mm. So, like, you know, just this kind of level of fragility and tenderness mm. and like vulnerability, like mm. you were saying. I, I think, and I was thinking a lot about, um, we interviewed Laurie Anderson recently, and I heard that you did a performance using a helmet and a scooter. And mm-hmm. I love this idea because she's been doing work with um, people's cars recently, like an orchestra of people's motor cars, like as mm-hmm. one of her recent works, it's so genius. And also there's an artist from Norway called Tori Ronas, who I know is I a big that. fan of yours. And oh, yeah, I don't know if you've have, met have each a sound other.
3: Artist. Yes. I've been to one of Tori's performances that Tori did in L.A. Yes. in, like, the bowels of a parking structure, That's right, yeah. and it was incredible. Yeah. That really blew me away. Like, Tori had, I don't know, somehow, like, gathered together a bunch of bodybuilders that she, like, solicited at the gym to participate <laughs> so there are these like muscle-bound so bodybuilders pulling why have i not dollies. seen this
1: this is right then, up my I'll, I'll send you the
3: book okay. Ralph. The book's amazing
1: yeah,
2: okay.
3: bodybuilders pulling other people on dollies and then there were people on bicycles and then this the sort of cacophony of vo- human voices echoing in a parking structure that was probably like six six levels down which as you know is like kind of a terrifying feeling Mm. Like in the <laughs> subterranean, yeah, basement so, of earthquake country.
1: I, I, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> oh my god! All that like life. whenever
3: I go, whenever I drive into my to my parking spot, I almost don't even park in my parking spot anymore because I drive all the way all the way down, down, down. And I'm like, fuck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so to, just to go back onto anxiety, sorry to do that, but there was there was a time when uh, you. You were given the opportunity for a show which I think was probably put you really on the map, which was at MoMA PS1 in 2015. You was given a solo show there called, which you named Off the Clock. But prior to that, you had uh, a bit of a panic meltdown and took yourself off somewhere to Joshua Tree in the desert with your dog to have some time alone to reassess. But while you were there, uh, the word Babo appeared to mm-hmm. you uh Mm -hmm. really strongly and there's a restaurant in new york near washington square park called Babo, which i passed a lot when i've been there and i always think of you and i'm always like is it related to that but this word came out of nowhere but that you channeling that panic into this show can we talk about what that sort of pressure was on you and how that all Mm. came about and
3: i i was in new york i was Installing a three person show at Henry on Henry Street at uh, Henry Gallery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a little show, tiny. And at that time, Henry was in a tiny, tiny little space. And I just, I had known Mia, I had met Mia a few times. Mia was at USC Curatorial when I was at UCLA for grad. And um, Mia had also gone to school with my at the time uh, partner. And I just got a call while well, I was, it was the winter. I think we were all like picking up lumber from some lumber yard in New York, which even like kind of amassing materials in New York is such a different experience than being in LA. Cause in LA you go to the lumber yard In New York, it's like I'm carrying two by fours through like Chinatown. Like I don't, so I remember sludging through the show with two by fours and then getting a call inviting me to have a solo show at PS1. Whoa. And I was like, of course. And then it was like, and it's going to be in four months. And I was like, okay. And then I think the idea was like, Mia was just really interested in bringing together the works, the more ephemeral works, the sculptural based works, the props from performances and the current body of work. And she was just bringing them all into this moment. And it was kind of like a mad dash, like, how is this going to work? And then, and it it did work. But I remember when I went to visit the site, they were like, these are the rooms. And there were literally four separate project rooms that are not big. I mean, I was like, um, how, what? Like, so I was like, I need to, I need to open these walls up. I can't do this. And then at the time... My my date had made this really incredible sculpture that was kind of framing out this architectural anomaly at my studio is this under the stairs form sort of like rectangle I don't what is the name of the shape where it goes into a rectangle into a point and then whatever. So they had framed a trib- out this tr- Tra- tr- rhombus. It a tr- rhombus. Tr- 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 or- or- Trape- let's call it a tra-
1: trap. Let's call it a trapezoidal rhombus. So- <laughs> that sounds <cute>. so, <laughs> so yeah. scientific. I love it. I love the three of us. A trapezoidal rhombus. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully, with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.
3: Uh, ended up kind of like, you know, moving from my studio to PS1. So I was interested in like kind of transposing one space on another. Mm -hmm. But it also created this like moment of repeat or almost like glitching because in one room it was flush against the wall and bordered on pointing at it being like kind of a reveal of the interior structure of the wall, though the material was too slight to actually be structural. And then two... Uh, two rooms over it repeats but it's kind of shifting so that one could potentially pass through and then also I think that it's not something I could totally explain but it felt like the the show kind of shifted in manner it kind of just took a turn it became a little like less frozen What, what was that
1: like to be given a show at MoMA to kind of go straight to the top and the pressure of that and and you were really exposed you you were everybody was, was talking about about the I, what was that what,
3: yeah.
1: what was that like, and how did you how did you cope with that
3: i I didn't really understand what it was at the time. I know that sounds but I didn't totally understand what it what it meant or what it yeah. was and Good. I think it brought a lot of attention and in a way it was almost like too much. Mm -hmm. It was like, it was like, okay, back up. And I couldn't, I kind of like kind of stepped back from it a little bit. I I found it to be overwhelming a little bit. I also don't think I totally understood the magnitude of having a solo show at that institution. Mm
2: -hmm. And
3: partly maybe that's because I like live in my own like weird math world, but I'm like, great PS one. Cool. Amazing. But I didn't, it didn't. What do you mean a math?
1: What do you mean a math world? <laughs>
3: just like in my like. Oh, you're right.
1: I'm sorry. I was thinking of the the subject, the school subjects. I'm like, oh, and I, like like Sedoku. Like my, and stuff. Oh no, like that's my, your I, name, Sudoku. isn't it? Yes,
3: no. got it. <laughs> I think yeah. I was like great, but it didn't register. It wasn't like uh, now I'm on the red carpet or something. Like it yeah. just. It, 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 so yeah. would you do
1: it differently if it if that came up now? If you hadn't had that experience then, then now you're in a position. Would would there be different things you would do?
3: Um. Well, I think, God, I don't even know. I mean, I would, I would probably want to, like, hmm, I think I would want to, like, kind of have a little bit more time.
0: Yeah. I
3: think I'd want, like, you know, a couple years.
0: Okay.
3: Uh, and I think I would want to sort of, like, not start from zero, but I think I would want to, like, conceive the entire show, like, from this point until completion. What else? Maybe, um, I mean, I was also young. I was young. I was, for me, I mean, I wasn't that young, but I mean, I've always thought. We're
1: the same old. age, me and you. We're both not in the
3: I world. know you're an 81er. Yes.
1: Hello. I really like
3: people. I really, I have this. Af- you're 1980. <laughs> that's not oh God. I have an affinity <laughs> so with the 80. It. I love that. I actually started like a a band with my friends in LA right before covid really like hit it was like pre right pre-covid and it was called 81 because oh, wow. everyone in the band was born in 81 and we had like two sessions we recorded them like on our iphones and i was like we just what i was like this is too good to be true which is 81 just peaked like it was just like <laughs> so cool and like it's the best year to
1: ever be born yeah. 81
3: i also Rus- had Rus- an Rus- with- your backup singer did you have friends from '79? I don't know why there was something about '79ers. I just like
1: my brother's '79.
3: I loved the goddamn '79ers. I'm not saying I don't love the '80s, the '85s, but there was. I'm just thinking specifically about being yeah. in high school when if someone's two years older, they seem like an adult. But all of my oh, friends yeah. were '79.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn, just, there's something, something kind old. of pathetic. There's something kind of pathetic about 1980, <laughs> isn't there? But 79, oh, yes. 81 feel really. 81. Cool. You're, a, you're
3: a bully, 81. Russell. Yeah. <laughs> but you were born. I, I just go, I googled you. You were born November. November. Uh, yeah. 14th. yeah. 14th. I was born September 17th. So isn't that funny? Wow. And I'm in was, yeah.
2: October, so we we can like celebrate every month of autumn. One month. Every
3: see, we've got Virgos, we've got Libras, we've yeah. got Scorpios. We're going we're going through the.
2: I love it uh, um you know something i've noticed math is that the response to your work critically is very kind of poetic and entertaining and mm-hmm. fun in a way like a lot of the reviews i've read people get really like animated and quite flowery people get saucy. yeah they get, that's they get good like saucy i know but i actually think that's quite unique to you i think you you bring yep. out something like there's an amazing <laughs> article in freeze written by um dan fox I love that. Oh, yeah. All about puns and and like props. I know. But it's a really poetic, it's a great piece of writing. Like, he's brilliant anyway, but like, I just thought it's really fascinating that your work, are you aware that you have that kind of impact or capability of taking things
3: out of people? I never thought of it before. My friend William just wrote an article that was in Artillery that I thought was so beautiful and also incredibly poetic. And it's almost like it is about my work, but then he also just runs with it makes a whole i can send you a link to that but i mean that feels that i would love for that i mean i think that ultimately um that's what i would aspire towards is kind of sharing that exchange of openness and having people feel like they can kind of break out of what what might be expected yeah totally like some kind of critical text or review or yeah it's fun and there's a I lot mean, of
1: humour in there, but it's also very camp at times. I'm thinking yeah. of the leg in particular that's kind of like Bob Fosse's uh-huh. cabaret mm-hmm. leg oh, yeah, that totally. sort of comes in from the, the corner of the canvas and sort of mm-hmm. pr- come down. Or like yeah. figure skating. It, it, it's mm-hmm. um, not figure skating. What do you got the thing in the swimming pools where everyone's legs synchronized, are Synchronised swimming. swimming. That's yeah. what it makes me think of. And that, yeah. I mean, that is so... Uh, enticing but that that again is a new motif that sort of came in during the bloomy show which uh, i love which i actually got mm-hmm. a work from which is when i first collected I, you but the that it that was amazing but do, are you um two th- questions here <coughs> Bloomingdales. what is mm-hmm. the obsession with Bloomingdales? Mm-hmm, and secondly mm-hmm. um the the leg motif what is that what does that symbolize for you
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the leg motif i mean it, it It um, originated from another kind of casual studio drawing. It was this, like, Mm. form that I was... I was just making some little drawings with ink and, like, brush and ink drawings, and it was this, like, kind of... almost, like, felt like this torso with, like, a bottom of sorts, and then a leg that came out. And then I was like, oh, I really like that leg, so I just continued to work with it and draw it and refine it until it became, like, a really graphic streamlined image Um, and then for the bloomingdale show i ordered i i moved into a new studio right when i started making that show the studio coincidentally was very long and narrow Uh i ordered a series of canvases that when they showed up i had an image i had an idea for a composition that i realized wasn't going to work but when the canvases actually arrived they were so long and narrow and i was like what am i going do with this like this is too it's just so it's too narrow it's too long ah and I kind of like laid down on the floor in my studio which I often do if I'm trying to figure something out I find like get horizontal mm-hmm. close your eyes close my eyes and it was literally like blooming dales it was like, but then so I went with it and then I started to like kind of you know searched for a like, high-res Bloomingdale's, you know, logo. But, and then I juxtaposed that or incorporated, like, my symbol with this pre-existing logo so that they're kind of, like, underscoring, semi-obscuring, merging. It's such a recognizable icon that even if it's, like, somewhat obscured, you know what it is. Yeah. And it also was such a thing at one point. Like, it was, like, this, like, like, it was really, like, a place to, be seen and like to see and be seen. And now since it's just really like a kind of a shell of what it was like, growing yeah. up. My mom would always be like, do you want to go to Bloomingdale's? And we would go to Bloomingdale's and it was just, it's,
1: <laughs> well, there was a, there was um, a poem. And, there was some lyrics that were on one of the press sheets of mm-hmm. yours that is about Bloomingdale's about the show, yes. which was in 2016 at Michael John Allen gallery in Miami. And it mm-hmm. said, there is a place on the East side of town they know my face because I'm always around. A pillar of strength, a haven to turn to. The place where I learn to feel noble and proud. Yes, it's Bloomingdale's. In a class beyond compare, the other stores all pale. Everything your heart desires will one day be on sale at Bloomingdale's. And that was written by David Sonnenberg in 1975. And it became a song that was recorded in 2016. Mm-hmm. That's powerful stuff.
3: I, I It's funny because I, I love David Sonnenberg. Um, he's just an incredible person and I'm really close with him and his wife and his kids. One of my wow. closest friends, Elizabeth, this is his daughter. And I was hanging out with his wife, Shelly, and I showed her my Bloomingdale's painting. And she was like, wait, have you ever heard David sing the Bloomingdale song? And I was like, no, what do you, what Bloomingdale song? And she was like, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. David wrote, and she told me the whole story. David just wrote a song about Bloomingdale's that never got recorded. Huh. It was like in his jingle box Never got recorded. It's just an incredible song because it's, like, it's so not about Bloomingdale's. Like, yeah. it's actually when you, like, listen to the lyrics and hear the song. Like, there's really nothing actually about Bloomingdale's in the song. And I, like, love how much of a projection it is. Like Yeah. And it's just a beautiful story song. Isn't
1: it, or someone. Yeah.
3: So I, so David and Elizabeth, who is just an incredible singer and who I've collaborated with on song and on music before, because she's really talented. One of those people who can just ad, like ad lib, completely improvise a fully, fully constructed song. Like it's a, it's an incredible gift. Um, so she and David recorded themselves singing a duet, and I think I had like five takes of it that played intermittently throughout the show so that like oh, there wow. was this like feeling of being in the exhibition space and being in a showroom and being in a domestic space. And that that show is kind of t- touching on all of these different spaces with this soaring soundtrack about Bloomingdale's, which I thought also just brought more humor to it because it is, a, yes. it is a funny body of work.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. it is totally. But, and, and now we're in that shift as we touched on earlier on at uh, Ville space You've now moved, you've worked for years on, on the new series, the paintings from, in, from 2012, which are, are are flat and they're on gouache, on unprimed canvas, and now you've moved into oil paint. So this new body of work is completely made with oil paint, but what's really interesting to me is that now the, the presence of paint is very clear, it's very painterly, it's very shaded, it's very, there's more... Um, realness to it rather than Mm. geometric abstraction hard lines it feels like there's a softness to this now Mm. as you said about we we touched on the snakes that were surrounding the eggs there's like an element of that which is very very fleshy suddenly rather than just a flat one color there's a lot of uh density to it is this is this for this body of work or is this a new like shift for you going into oil paint and embracing that more
3: i think i'm going to continue working with oil I I was trying to identify, okay, where did this shift actually come from? Mm. And I think in some way it has to be a response to the restrictions of this pandemic. Because when I think about the former bodies of work being like such internal language, so much of it was kind of this deep, like auto, auto generated set of images with my own kind of idiosyncratic meaning.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Um, to then kind of go and uh, have like the structure of our society become so restrictive and shut down i think that it i kind of got to this place where making work that was so unforgiving because with the gouache and the and the on um, canvas it's like there's just no room for error and i think i couldn't possibly on top of really not being able to do to do anything or go anywhere, also just have a completely unforgiving, you know, mm. method of image making. And I also kind of think I started to like externalize a little bit more, even like externalize my emotional state, um, start to look outward towards images that I find to be like really poignant and relatable to this moment. And I was kind of like, right now, I'm just kind of like, interested in the way that the vocabulary of a mast can engage with new forms, but also in just opening up the possibility to potentially paint anything. And the oil is just so, it has its own, it has its own intelligence. It's really challenging. I found myself coming up against my own just like wall. I mean, it was just sometimes absolutely just humiliating to try As an adult, to try to do something that you don't know how to do, after having done something that kind of nailed down for so long. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. um,
1: Do you normally paint freehand? This archive of signs that you work through—are they freehand, or do do you work with stencils, or how do you? Because they're always so perfect.
3: No stencils. I transfer. I, I I compose images digitally, so I know what the image is going to be. With right. The gouache paintings, and then I transfer them onto the canvas, and then it's a very painstaking, um, painstaking process of basically like creating a. I use a little beveled tool, which is like a barbecue skewer, cut at a beveled angle, to create the right. outer edge, and then I go on and paint with brush. Um, so nothing is taped, unless it's a gradient, because it's impossible to make a gradient without taping. Mm. But it's, it's, um, Mm. but no, no stencils. Yeah, no stencils. Because everything has, is, the the size of each form is so specific to the composition that it really is about like finding that tension. So that if it was just kind of like plop, 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 it would would work.
2: (laughs) It wouldn't be as dynamic, would it? It wouldn't have the tension between the.
3: No, because sometimes it's literally just adjusting something by like a hair and it's like, ah, there it is and it's so right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, the last few weeks I've been thinking a lot about Los Angeles and how much I miss it, but also um with the death of um Sophie the music producer who was a big hero of mine, it really brought up Los Angeles because a lot of my friends from there were reaching out and either lived with or or knew Sophie and it was you know rest in peace to Sophie and thank you so much for everything they did because extraordinary contribution to culture Mm -hmm. and music and art as well Mm. um but it got me thinking what is it like as an artist to like live in LA because I think it's such a unique community and it's is it something that's enriching for you do you who do you hang out with like what what what, what, what's important about LA for you and your work Mm.
3: I've lived and, yeah, and I also would like to say, like, rest in peace, Sophia. I've got a lot of close friends who were really, yeah, close with Sophia, feeling the yeah. weight of that loss. Um, I have lived here for f- going on 16 years, which is almost as long as I've lived anywhere, because I left, I left New York when I was 17, and I never returned. Mm. Um, I... I, as a city, I mean, it's funny asking me this question because I was kind of thinking about it this morning because it has changed, which cities always do. When I first moved here, it was, like, very strange. Like, nothing was what it appeared to be. It was, like, this strip mall was actually, like, the best club. Like, you could go into, like, this blacked-out storefront. And it was, like, what is this? So it was always, like, these little treasures being revealed and you kind of just had to, like you know, you're, like, kind of, like, ushered in to, like, a really, like, secret underground scene, which has since become uh, much more visible. I think there's there's a spaciousness to it and, like, a kind of unfolding, scrolling, like, feeling. It's almost like I think of, like, a real of film, just, like, rolling and rolling. And so much of space is experienced, like, in a moving vehicle. Mm-hmm. And it's like you just get glimpses. Like if you ever actually walk from like one end of Sunset Strip all the way to like Chinatown, it's amazing because you're like, oh, this is a real city. I'm just like kind of seeing it unfold in a different like scale, a different timeline. I love doing that, actually. There's like a really long night walk because during the day you can't not only because it's just like the brutal sun, but also... It's too, like, you're too exposed and raw, but there's something about nighttime in LA that I find particularly, like, dreamy to just walk for a very long time. Um, I have really, you know, gorgeous friendships here that I I don't know what I would do without, like, a community of people, mostly artists, um, somewhat intergenerational, queer. Um, the last year, I mean... It's it's definitely spooky here. I mean, there's just so many structures that are boarded up that will never open. And I'm like, what will become of this Denny's? What will become yeah. <laughs> like there's just the whole go the ghost, like the movie theater is like shuttered. Just like sh- every it's just it's it's taken on like a really dire tone. Mm. Kind of like the, the collapse is alive and well. In los angeles yeah.
1: so, well, you, you touched on um, the queer community there which feels really important in your practice and queerness and otherness feel like they're fundamental to the meaning of a lot of your work do you do you feel like that's something you could talk about
3: yeah i think uh i think about you know being trans and not uh and having like kind of a gender that is indeterminate in a way or is is you know Somewhat both and none, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that is very much embedded in, in the work, and in, in the openness of the work, and the, um, the ambiguity. Uh, yeah, how something can be can be both and none at once, I think is kind of inherent. I think that's uh, what I see
1: with the speech bubbles. I think that's why I interpret them as I can see that as well, because it's like wanting to say something, but words aren't enough.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, for me, I love that sculpture yeah. as well. That's like the sculpture and then it's its shadow and you've got the kind of double, like the two together. Mm-hmm. I think the double and the kind of, you know, the, mm-hmm. the double basically as a theme is quite a fascinating one in your work, actually. It's like a subconscious kind of constant mm-hmm. running theme mm-hmm. that I find really compelling. I also heard you describe queerness before as something incredibly positive and, like, kind of inclusive and whole spirit kind of a wonderful, rich, positive, fun, great experience, which is such a nice thing to think about. Joy. Do you know what I mean? Like, queer joy and trans I mean, joy. I, kind
3: of yeah. Unity. Yeah. I, I'm like, thank, thank <laughs> God I'm queer. I don't know. I'm, I'm yeah. so oh, happy to yeah. be queer. I'm so happy to be queer. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, it's like being part of a special little club. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Have you ever shown in London?
3: No, I haven't.
1: That's crazy. I've only
3: been to That's London something. once. One time. Yeah. And I really liked it. I mean, I got a good hit from it. But...
1: We, we need <laughs> to hit you again. <laughs> Not like that. Yeah. We need to bring you back to London and we hit need you to again. London. Right. We need I
3: you. know. Once, once our world <laughs> loosens up a little bit, I, I can't wait to... And that's another thing of just the experience for the last year like in a way i think there's something incredible about yeah. not being able to go anywhere it's almost like being my girlfriend was like it's almost like we're in high school like when you really couldn't go anywhere and you really couldn't so do like anything that. yeah and mm. you know and i'm like i kind of mm-hmm. feel that way where it's like now i'm like let's go on a walk to the mountains and then jump in the pool. That'll just be like the most fun thing we've ever done (laughs) in our entire lives. And and it is. And I'm like, okay, thank you. I'm like, it's kind of like getting back to like these base pleasures and appreciation of like what's actually right here right now. And there's so, you know, (laughs) there's such a kind of like grasping for everything outside of ourselves to make ourselves feel whole in our culture where it's like actually just go in and you're fine. Just jumping, Do
1: you think this made forward. you a bit more spiritual in this time? Because it feels like there's some works in your recent show um, uh, that feel like there's a, a grave of uh, a priest uh, that appears, and I, uh, called Thomas Merton, who who mm-hmm. became a monk. And yeah. there's there's elements that suddenly feel like there's a spiritual side of you which we're, we're seeing in this latest body of work.
3: Well, I started studying Tibetan Buddhism and tantric meditation sep Those are separate lineages in the last year or more, uh, intensively. I always considered myself to be a spiritual person, but I didn't have like a direct discipline that I followed. Um, but I am finding having a daily meditation practice is helping me through this just to navigate this moment. um, mm-hmm navigate the last year and all the forms of loss that I've encountered in the last year. I think, uh, I'm kind of trying to imagine what, how I would be handling everything that's happened if I didn't sit on a daily basis. And I think there's something about sitting that has allowed me to kind of like drop a narrative or drop this like kind of circ- circ- circulating of like a, an idea of what's happening over and over again, which can ultimately just cause a lot of, Pain, whereas like I'm just coming into each moment. And there's a lot of there's a lot of grief and, and loss right now, and I think it's just really important to allow yourself to really feel it and go into it, and not try to push it away, but also not try to kind of constantly rehydrate it. If that makes sense, yeah, it's it kind of be with it. I yeah. um, <laughs> think um, really. Good.
2: Really drawn to your recent paintings of um like almost like fossilized skeletons or something like my mum worked at the natural history museum when i was a kid so i was oh. constantly going through all the drawers and you'd used to find like claws of dinosaurs or like maps mm-hmm. of what the whole body of the dinosaur would have see the
1: archaeological like. there's egyptian Ar- in there exactly. as well but i'm really like into that
2: yeah and that kind of like archaeology and like the timeline this kind of idea of like ancient you know creatures or can you speak a bit about that new element that's
3: Yeah, I was thinking about, like, this collapsing of this timeline, too, for, like, you know, that like that. So I finished a meditation, and immediately the word camel skeleton popped in my head. And I was like, okay.
1: What? Camel skeleton?
3: Camel skeleton. It was like the way that I get these little, like, clips of language, I do. And I'm like, okay. So it was camel skeleton. And I was like, okay. And then I started to do a search, and I found an image of a camel skeleton that had been unearthed in vienna in 2006 during like the excavation of a you know a, a piece of land in order to build a shopping center oh So God. people are like digging to build a shopping center and come across a camel skeleton in vienna so it's like what is this camel skeleton doing in vienna camels don't live in vienna and as it oh, turned yeah. out it was like a an ottoman war camel from the 17th century 16th wow. 17th century so and and I did feel like this collapsing of timelines in that discovery, and also like how you could be doing something so mundane, like digging to build a mall, and then you find, you know. Um, so I also was just moved by that image. And when I was a kid, I had this book of skeletons that were all um, superimposed against a black background, and I loved it. It was like a penguin, a horse a turtle, and it was like, oh, I loved this book. It was, I wish I had it. Um, so, yeah, that's also somewhat fed into, like, just kind of the camel skeleton floating in Love. This, this abyss. Um, but when I oh, I'm started... to see
1: painting, where this goes, yeah.
3: So I started painting the camel, and then we got hit with massive fires to oh, the yeah. point where my, my girlfriend and I were like okay we actually just need to leave like we can't it was like not just burning trees it was like burning structures and all of the the chemicals that are released in that and we were just like sick so we drove to new mexico so camel skeleton pause come back continue painting the camel skeleton And I also was like, I don't even know how I'm going to paint this camel skeleton. How the hell am I going to do this? And Emily was like, just one bone at a time, math. So each bone was like (laughs) its own, like completely its own like container of a moment. But then within the composition of the piece, it was broken up into like kind of like an act in three tragedies. Because then a week and a half later, my mother falls deathly ill. We have to go to New York. My mother passes away. So I, you know, which... I mean, I'm not even, like, right now I can be like, and then my mom died, so it's not like that at all. It's been such a a huge, huge loss and just, you know, um, a real transformation on a cellular level um, Mm -hmm. of everything that I kind of feel like I understood. But that, you know, broke the composition up. Three weeks later, I come back and I'm like, oh my God, I I finish painting this camel skeleton. So then I just going by the time I got to the last toe of the camel I was like just weeping and I was like okay I'm gonna oh, finish wow. and I painted the last toe, and then it was done so if you look at it or if you see the painting you kind of like almost see like it's like it's not even like cohesive it's like a record of this period of time and then the way the bones are like a record yeah, hold a record of, of a life and so I think there was that happening with that piece. Oh so, a lot of the works from this new show kind of entered in ways that I couldn't have anticipated. Like, I didn't seek out to paint Thomas Merton's grave, but when I was doing some research, Thomas Merton was mentioned in a book I was reading. The book was called How to Do Nothing, and I was reading this book, and I was immediately compelled by him, so I did research on him, and he had written this autobiography called The Seven Story Mountain, which came out in the 50s and was very popular, and had it not been a religious text, it would have been like a bestseller, but I think that was something prohibiting religious texts from being bestsellers. And um, his writing was so like clear and simple and beautiful. And it's sort of just like this story of how he, I don't know, like his journey into asceticism and he was born in France and then ended up moving to New York and actually grew up in what at the time was a pastoral town in Queens, which was next to the town that I grew up in. So I thought it was like very compelling to even imagine the little town that I grew up in, which was like a New York City suburb, being like pastoral and being this, where this guy also grew up. Um, wow. So I was looking, um, I was doing an image search to see what he looked like. And I came across an image of his grave at an abbey that he's buried in, in Kentucky. And in every image that I found, it was like his tombstone surrounded by identical tombstones, but his tombstone always was adorned with like rosaries or flowers. And then in one instance, I found an image of it with this white satin sash. And I just found it to be so moving, you know, this really like kind of like emptiness and presence all in one. And like sort of like you see that body there, you see that adornment. And then you also see like just the loss and the absence of the body. Um, mm. And then the head of Anubis my friend Isabel Albuquerque, who's um, an artist in LA, one of my one of one of my really close friends, sent me an image of this head of Anubis, and because I have a little dog that looks kind of like Anubis, got she's got she's a black chihuahua with very sharp features, and I was and immediately I... just her name is Joan, Good like night. Joan, Joan like Joan Didion. Love. Um, oh yes, who I saw you post a picture on your Instagram. Oh, you were... There was a cigarette on the... Yeah, she was holding a cigarette. Just an L.A. icon. Um, But I was really drawn to just the the iconic silhouette of this this, um, artifact, and then also just thinking about, like, the flattening and and categorization of what was once a really potent spiritual object and is now just sort of being, like, museologically reached for with the white colonial gloved hand... And so I just wanted to, like, create a little narrative around that.
1: Um, well, I always feel like it relates to the hieroglyphics, which feel like they are kind of part of your language. Is it, as you were saying, okay. on the repetition of, of an old pharaoh, you would then to highlight it, exclamation mark now, it feels like Anubis is a nod to that kind of language that is relating. Yeah,
3: to that. I think that that was, like, where the attraction, the initial attraction, because immediately when I got the image, I just felt such a resonant resonance, and I felt such a connection to the image. And in the way that it relates to some, I, I guess kind of indirectly, but relates to some of the forums that I've worked with.
1: Well, the Scotty Dog is like...
3: Yes, absolutely, the Scotty Dog.
1: That's, that's, a, that's one of your motives. Well, that show is called Desert Veins, which is at Vilmeta. In Los Angeles and that's amazing um, so we should move on to the questions that we ask every guest that comes on the same two questions Dude. the first one is if you could do an art heist, math, if you could have any work of art in the world to yourself, for yourself and it's fine, you can have it what would it be and why?
2: And we can help you it can be as big or small as I oh mean, it can be anything anything? <laughs>
3: okay okay there I'm just, this is just, because I'm have. just going right off. Of it. There's this little Villard painting at the Met. It's so small. It's like 10 by 12. And it's, um, it's just, it's a little group of people gathered around a table. And I believe that it's like capturing, it's capturing like post-funerary or some kind of gathering right after a loved one has died. I'm sorry, I'm so morbid, but it is. And it's just really fine and almost, like, unintelligible strokes become the image. Uh-huh. I can send you an ima- a picture. Anyway, I... Maybe, yeah. Maybe.
2: yeah, we can post it on our Instagram. So, who, who painted it?
3: The, the Ard. The, the U-I-L-L-A-R-D. I can't pronounce it. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, Great. Okay, cool. And the, the other question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite colour? Which I am intrigued... Yellow!
3: Because- Yellow! Really? Yellow! Yay. Yellow well, that's the, is my, my favorite work I've got. color. I love yellow. I love well, yellow. No, my not bedroom is was... so it's the opposite. No. <laughs> I love yellow. Is the color of the bedroom I grew up in. I love yellow and the way yellow feels. All shades of yellow, especially bright, bright yellow.
1: That's what I've got. I've got the arches in yellow that you. I
3: know. To. I love those arches. I yeah. love that.
1: And I mean you've got like I think I don't really see it in any other works, but you have like this kind of black sky, just a section that goes across the top. Mm-hmm. What did that what did that what was the language going through that piece particularly?
3: With the arches and the black sky. Yeah. I feel like it's this it was this way of like I'm trying to remember exactly because it really like worked with that painting, I feel. It like created a weight, it created a container. I think it like kind of compositionally like it was sort of like what takes up space and what also is spaceless at the same time. Mm-hmm. I
1: really liked about it. Mm, I love that. And is Ellsworth Kelly a, uh, like a hero of yours and both Carmen Herrera like, else like else the big geometric abstractionist? I, mean both, is, I yeah.
3: mean, both. Yeah, I love, I love both of those. Because when
2: you said yellow, there's actually one of my favorite paintings ever is a yellow shape by Ellsworth Kelly, which I think was
1: like a B, isn't
2: it? Mm-hmm. I think he told me once at Freeze New York, maybe mm-hmm. even the same year you had your solo booth, weirdly. He came on the booth yeah. and said he just bought this yellow. Um Ellsworth Kelly and it's the most beautiful
1: It's in architectural painting, digest.
3: But like- I love how those paintings, some of them are just like object and that like kind of intersection between object and painting. Yeah. It's, like it's really beautiful.
2: Before we go, Math, what advice would you give to like a young artist or an emerging artist or even an artist that might have been doing it for a long time and hasn't, you know, even got to show yet? Um because you're someone that's obviously, you know, part of the kind of commercial art world in a way, and, you, you know, you're you're being written about and you're showing in museums as well as private galleries. Like, what, what advice would you give an artist?
3: I always... I, I would say... I always say... There's nothing more valuable than... forming your community of peers and really engaging with your peer group. And... Finding spaces, unexpected spaces to show your work, make prod, make performance, like house performances, put up your art shows, just like use what you have and really like there's nothing more important, I think, than like having a community of artists Agreed. that you're in dialogue with. I think that, that really gets you through.
1: Oh, I'd love to know some of the people who's in your, in your kind of crew. Who's your yeah. squad?
3: It was my squad. Are you familiar with Alex Chavez? C-H-A-V-E-S? Yes. I know Alex from LA. You
2: do? He helped us install our booth at uh, Los Angeles years and years and years ago.
3: Maybe like eight years ago. Years and years ago. That makes sense.
2: Yeah. And he is amazing. one of my
3: favorite. He's amazing. Favorite painters. I love him so much. I love his work. I think he's just brilliant. Just oh, kind of. Yeah. let's Alex Chavez, Eve Fowler. Oh, yeah. Uh incredible, incredible, incredible artist, incredible facilitator, incredible curator just across the board. You know, she just does it all and she's brilliant. Um, My friend Amy Robertson, one of my other favorite artists. Um, Who else are some of my peeps? My partner, Emily Siegel, who is an artist and a novelist. Uh, um, Who else are some of my favorite artists in L.A.? Sarah Clendenning, I would say, kind of uh, l- somehow a lesser-known but brilliant sculptor. Um, who are some other people that I love? I'm like in my mind. I'm like, who have I seen in the last?
1: No one. Uh,
3: I know. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like Mar- uh, Marissa Tical, um Lauren Halsey.
1: Um, oh, I love Lauren's
3: work. Brilliant. So inspired, like, just incredible work. Um, who else is really, really...
2: Well, Ross, really we still have to go to LA, LA and do a whole like talk art series.
3: Come to LA, do a crawl once Once our... once our. You know,
2: Honestly, I, I think I think LA, it's the best studio visits of my life. Like, because you...
3: Just, Isabel Albuquerque. Ah, oh yeah, Great. So good. David's daughter. Um, Amazing.
1: Well, Matt, this has been phenomenal. Oh, love you so thank you much. so, so, so much it for speaking so to us nice from your high rise cool on Los Feliz. You. Yeah. you
2: have a beautiful yeah. mind. With, with
1: the raids going on around you, love the you. way you think about
2: it uh, just—it's a beautiful way of looking at the world. Yeah. I love it. I have so much respect for you. Yeah. and um thank you for your generosity and being so open. And um yeah, it's very inspiring.
3: Totally. Thanks for inviting me on. This was lovely. Of course. Cool.
1: For everyone listening, we are on Talk Art, on Instagram and Twitter. And are you active on Instagram Math?
3: Mm, in and out. In and you out. are on there, though. I go that. on, I go off. I'm on there. Yeah, I'm on at there. Math
2: Pearl Bass. I am on
3: there. Yeah. On there. At Math For math. my sanity. I'm too compulsive. You know what I mean? I'm too compulsive. I can't. If I keep it on, I can't. I can't modulate. I just can't.
2: Yeah. So, Yeah. Well, thank you so much for images of all the artworks we've discussed in today's episode. You can visit our Instagram at talk art and you can visit math's Instagram, which is at math pearl bass. And you can also visit uh, Tanya. Leighton's Gallery and Ville uh, <laughs> And uh, we'll be posting links. But thank you so much, and we'll be back very soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. So Thanks, Matt. Bye,
1: Matt. Thanks. Bye. Bye, bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby.
2: Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by Jack Northover.
1: Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.
2: Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.